0: If you're the leader and you want to make an impact, you need to make that impact through not accepting the ordinary performance, not accepting the usual.
1: I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that, quite frankly, often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest in this episode is Dennis Roberts, the CHRO at a Wholesale Distribution Company. Dennis is big on not just hiring the right talent, but making sure to engage them properly. He also says organizations need to work hard to keep their stars on board, while also realizing that in our current world, moving from one job to another is not uncommon. He also says the role of HR falls into three buckets. It's a very interesting perspective, and I'll let him tell you about what those three buckets are. So what do you say we dive right in? Dennis Roberts, welcome to the show. Thank you. I uh, appreciate you taking some time to spend with me and to share with the audience your story and some magical insights that you have on the industry in general. You ready to do this?
0: Adam, let's let's do this. And thank you for inviting me as well. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning.
1: Yeah, thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Before we get started, if you'd be so kind as to share you know, a little bit about who you are, what you're doing and how you got here.
0: Well, I'm currently a chief human resources officer for a wholesale distribution company called MFI. We're based in Astoria, Queens, New York. We have operations from Maine to Virginia. So it's a, a relatively complex employee group. And, um, we've been successful in spite of the uh, the covid where we had to take some time off but business is is coming back and we're looking uh, looking forward to uh, to going ahead here we've restructured the management team we've implemented technology and we've done a little uh, a lot of things that are going to h- help move us uh, into the future one of my early jobs involved curriculum development for training manufacturing people at a company called milliken From there, I branched out to, um, you know, some more generalist roles and became involved in a number of private equity portfolio companies. I ran a consulting practice for nine years, and a lot of that was interim CHRO for uh, private equity uh, portfolio organizations. I joined uh, Z Capital Partners in 2015 and came to my current position in uh, 2018, just over two years ago. So
1: I've got so many questions about your experience from a private equity perspective, as opposed to kind of being on the periphery, as opposed to being like in the weeds with the companies themselves. But before we get there, I'd like to uh, ask you what I like to call my rapid fire questions. These are some like uh, real short questions just to give the audience a better feel for kind of you as a person.
0: Sound good? Okay. I'm ready. Pressure. Right.
1: <laughs> I bet you handle pressure pretty well. You said you were uh, in the war, correct?
0: Uh, long ago and far away. But okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Lefty or righty? I'm a righty, incorrigibly. <laughs> okay. Early bird or night owl? I start out early bird. Uh, sometimes it ends up being night owl. I'm, uh, I'm usually out of bed by five. Five. Do you have a certain routine that you follow at five? I could tell you that I could get up and get on the Peloton religiously, but it's, uh, it's not real religious. But I, you know, I, I do like to work out in the morning. That's great. So did you have a Peloton?
1: Did you get one prior to this pandemic or is that something that you were doing or that you've just recently
0: started? No, you know, I bought it for my wife for Christmas and um, I was amazed. I don't want to do a Peloton commercial, but I was amazed at how well it was built. And when the pandemic uh, hit and we sent the HR staff and most of the finance staff here home, to work the peloton was there in my office staring at me so one day <laughs> i i got onto to it and um i'm now at uh, a little over 200 rides oh. and i've been on it every day in the last 30 days except for once and i really don't know what happened that day but but yeah it's a good setup all right what's the
1: the name of your last
0: boat the last boat's name was goose Ooh. It was named by the person that I bought it from, and he said that he was a John Wayne fan and that one of John Wayne's boats was called, the Goose was part of the name of of that boat. And so um, I took that. I didn't ask any questions, but on the closing document, I saw that he lived on Goose Lane in somewhere in Connecticut, so I'm not sure how accurate that is. (laughs) That's interesting.
1: And is that customary when you buy
0: someone else's boat to keep the name? I guess if you like the name. A lot of people name boats for their girlfriends or their wives, which is probably a a wise thing since uh, it's going to be eating up a lot of your financial well-being. So you might as well have a partner there. But uh, (laughs) the old salts say it's bad luck to change the name on a boat. That's right. and I'll leave it to history to decide whether that's true or not. All right. uh, tell me a habit that you have, good, bad, or indifferent. A good habit. This may be good. I'm sort of obsessed with being prepared. Mm. So whether it's uh, personal or business, mm. I sort of live by the mantra that you don't ever want to show up unprepared. But I, I do have a bad habit, maybe one or two, but one of them is trying to give advice to my adult children. <laughs> that never ends up well. And <laughs> uh, and sometimes they just smile and nod. Thank you, dad. And they've sort of learned me by now. So
1: getting back to preparation, is that a military thing? I'm a huge fan of preparation. And one of my uh, favorite quotes actually comes from the military. It's uh, poor preparation leads to piss poor performance.
0: I think that's true. And I think it's, I think it's especially true in the military, especially in terms of leadership, because the stakes are a little higher. You don't want anybody to suffer because of your lack of preparation. Yeah. So yeah, I think maybe I've taken that, but it's, uh, it's never, I've never been embarrassed by being prepared. let's just put it that way.
1: Oh, that's a good way of uh, phrasing it. Tell me something about you that most people just wouldn't know.
0: Well, it sort of goes back to the boats, I think. I held a uh, United States Coast Guard master's captain's license for 10 years, which would have enabled me to drive commercial boats. I never did that. I am a, a lifelong boater, and so I took the course, sat for the test, passed it, and they combine your test results with your sea time. And I got a little plaque to hang on the wall. And you keep that in the office? I've had it in the office, but usually it ends up on the boat. (laughs) Gotcha. All right.
1: So let's transition into your professional experience. I love what you're doing. I love what you've done. I know that there are a lot of people out there that are interested in the private equity side. If we could, I'd like to talk about that first, and we'll go back to what you're doing now. But um, getting into that side of the business, any advice on how one... Gets into the operational human
0: resource side of private equity. Well, I, I suppose there are, there are a number of avenues to it. I ended up at a portfolio company working with two very bright investment managers from HIG Capital, and these guys look for people who get stuff done. And They're looking for people who are bright, yes, but work hard and take it seriously. People who understand that it's all about shareholders' equity. It's all about growing the company. Mm. Once they perceive that you're that kind of person, then they begin to lean a little heavier on you because... uh, these private equity companies, they'll make the investment. They'll send in operating partners, or in some cases, the members of the investment team will come in and sort of oversee the portfolio company and make sure everything is moving forward as they had planned in what they call the investment thesis. So they're always looking for people. Private equity is starved for people that fit. Mm. And and so that's sort of my early entree into private equity. After that, it becomes a little bit of a fraternity because it's a sharp-elbowed kind of situation. <laughs> they're not looking for folks who are looking to come in at nine and go home at five. They're they they're looking for people who, in the words of one of my bosses, hang pelts on the wall. And after that, it becomes uh, easier to do those subsequent interviews whenever that you can talk about Even as an HR person, if you can talk about internal rate of return, if you can talk the language of the financials of private equity and why you're there and how HR can push those financials and impact the process of the investment, then you'll see some eyebrows go up around the conference room table. And generally, it's like, where did this HR guy come from? (laughs) <laughs> and and that reminds
1: me about something when we were talking the other day. You talked to me about breaking HR down into three buckets. And would you mind explaining what those buckets are? And then I'll dig, <laughs> dig a little deeper into each of those, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let me preface that by saying that if some of your senior HR listeners remark that, boy, is that overly simplistic, and I'll tell you that yeah, they're exactly right. <laughs> so, but I've spent most of the last 20 years in mid market companies uh, having revenue of uh, 200 million to $2 billion. <clears throat> and so you do a lot of education with senior managers in those organizations and sometimes also with boards of directors or investors. And so Just to make it easy, I said, well, I put HR activities into three buckets. The first bucket I labeled transactions. So you get people on and off the payroll, basic hiring, managing payroll on a cyclical basis, basic employee relations issues, benefits administration, 401k administration, the blocking and the tackling of HR, if you will. The second bucket is compliance. So there you're, it's important that you develop policies, uh, implement them, manage them. There's a big reporting part of compliance, with, whether it's CEO, OSHA, DOL, whomever. Investigation of charges, discrimination, harassment, and training of managers to reduce that compliance risk. And compliance is becoming even more of an issue. Its importance is growing, and the, the effects of, of not doing a good job with compliance are not only financial, but also with regard to the, the overall reputation of, of the firm. Now, the, the third bucket is one that I call generative And this is really how we make the money, how we make the organizational successful. If you do transactions right every time, if you're the payroll manager and you work at a firm for 25 years and everybody gets paid the right amount at the right time, for 25 years, nobody knows your name. So doing a good job with transactions and compliance it helps. It's non-deferrable. It's very important, but it doesn't, back to the PE side, it doesn't really, doesn't really drive EBITDA. But the generative bucket does. And what am I talking about there? It's the alignment of people and people programs to a strategy or a business case. It could be serving as an advisor to the board of directors, perhaps on the compensation committee. It could be workforce transformation. It could be succession planning. It could be implementing of technology and analytics across the enterprise, or it could be the evolution of compensation programs as the company is going through transformation, making sure that we are rewarding the behaviors that we're looking for in the future instead of what we've always done in the past. So, those are the kinds of overly simplistic three buckets that I've found people can understand easily. And are you finding either bucket more important than another? I can tell you the one I like the best, and, and, that's, <laughs> okay. and that's the latter. Yep, I got um, that sense. <laughs> but it's almost like saying, is the foundation of my house more important than the roof And I guess you could argue that, but no, I I guess the short answer is no. In terms of credibility for the HR function within an organization, more people come into contact with the transactional and the compliance side than do the generative bucket. Gotcha. So as a turnaround HR guys, there a system
1: that you have and or have that you put into place when you're either, I guess, building or rebuilding the HR function? Like, do you have a process that is repeatable that maybe someone who's listening to this right now could implement? E- even, And I'm not saying to get into the granules, but even
0: just high level. Well, h- high level is you have to have a vision for how you want the what I call the human capital function to look like. You have to have a vision for the kinds of people that will be successful there. So I like to hire people who can evidence that they're not just doing a job, but they're a professional at it. The last payroll manager that I hired, I went out and it was very important to me. That person have a CPP, Certified Payroll Professional certification that they kept up with it and that people are certified and professional. And then there are the behavioral types. I mean, can I get you on the weekend? Mm -hmm. Can you know, if something comes up, what do we do? And how do we build relationships with our supported community? All of those things are very important. And I think when I was at a company called Bush Industries, the CFO told me once, probably the best compliment every anyone ever gave me professionally was, it's embarrassing when the HR department is the best department in the company. <laughs> so you have to, whether it's turnaround or anything else, if you're the leader and you want to make an impact, you need to make that impact through not accepting the ordinary performance, not accepting the usual. And I tell people, I said, look, if you come to work for me, my pledge to you is that your resume will look better when you leave. And, oh, by the way, I expect you to leave. Uh, let's talk about that. The truly professional people, the days of 30 years and a gold watch are generally over. If you've hired good people, career minded, sort of aggressive folks and they come in and they do a good job for you if you're in a big organization then you can perhaps facilitate their career growth within the organization but if you're not then you have to help that person prepare to be successful further on in their career and if you are honest with them i found that they will be honest Uh, With you, and I think there are too many managers who just expect that. Boy, I have some really good people, and I don't think too much about retention. They're going to be here, and I don't think too much about engaging them in what they want their career to look like in the next uh, three to five years. Everybody that I have in my current department, I I I wish they would stay forever, but I can tell you that's not going to happen actually, for any of them, they're all going to move on.
1: Interesting. So I have uh, an uncle, he used to be the CIO of Beckton Dickinson, and he was at Mars Bar, and I mean, just wildly successful guy. And I'll never forget this, this is almost 20 years ago, when I, and I was in recruiting, and we were just having a conversation. And I was like, Oh, my God, I met this guy he's so good, but he's moved around just so much. And he says, uh, send me his resume. And I says, Oh, well, it has no bearing it's not, nothing to do with your back with your division he goes D- did he progress in all these moves and did he work with good organizations i said yeah they're all top i mean you got to see this guys it's 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 great he goes that's the kind of people that i like to hire he goes when i see someone that's been with one organization unless they're just changing roles within the same organization i, I don't want them i don't i want the person that's going to work their way out of a job that's the goal of a job is to work your way out and to be able to move on and pass along someone to either improve a process where it's just not needed or to be able to work yourself out of an opportunity where you can push those other responsibilities to someone else so they can grow.
0: I think that's exactly right. In the old days, it used to be, well, it was a, uh, is a, they're a little hoppy and (laughs) they hop from one job to the next. And I think the current paradigm is that if you are an organization and you don't think about retention, and you don't go through a process of talent management and identify who your stars are and work on retaining them, then you inevitably are going to get surprised. And those surprises usually come at the worst possible moment. That's the truth. <laughs> that is so true. Oh, my God.
1: Going back to your uh, private equity days, can you walk me through a deal that either you
0: didn't do as a result of some of the HR due diligence? Sure. There was one deal that we, we did not do, and I'm not going to name any names here, but one of the things that the laws of the land is called the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it's uh, has both federal and state implications and it can get very expensive on a corrective basis. So, we were doing due diligence on a uh, potential acquisition and normally an organization will warrant and represent to you certain basic things about they'll hold you uh harmless uh, for uh, certain things that might turn up during the uh, the due diligence process but we found that um, in terms of Fair Labor Standards Act violations for uh, misclassification of, of people, that, that there was a it was a big number there. And uh, the feds can go back, uh, I believe, six years um, or three years for egregious violations. And some of the states, New York being one, can go back six years. So they you can be uh, held liable for people that don't work for you any longer and so when we really took a look at the potential number there that we backed away and in truth it was pretty close anyway but a lot of firms uh, a lot of people making acquisitions they fall in love with the deal and they mm. and so they try to make the deal work it's sort of maybe turn a blind eye to certain things occasionally but this is one there's one case where once we identified it we dug into it a little bit more and it wouldn't have worked to uh, to have completed that acquisition with those with that potential uh, number sort of hanging out there over our heads and there were one or two others but that was the biggest issue well wow. so a friend of
1: mine who's in PE wildly successful guy told me that Adam he says sometimes the best investments are those you don't make
0: i think that's true yeah. I don't know what the what the number is anymore, but the number of M&A initiatives that failed to secure the pre-deal expectation was pretty high in the 60% range. Wow, that's, that's staggering. So
1: I, I get a question for you, which I found um, pretty interesting. If you're talking to someone who does something similar to you, the gal that I was speaking with, she told me in the private equity world, especially from this HR perspective, because there's so many different moving parts, how important she weighs on her vendors. Is that something that is important to you and that you've done?
0: Yeah, especially if she's in the HR function, then I would imagine a lot of her vendors, well, there's a couple of ways to look at this. If I've got five portfolio companies out there and I have a particularly good background check investigation uh, company, then I might want to spread that person to over all of my portfolio companies. And perhaps I get a better price, but I know that the quality that I'm getting. So the same would hold true for private equity firms that use search firms. The search firm is very important when you can't do it yourself all the time and private equity firms and their portfolio companies are always starved for talent, always starved for talent. So once you have a relationship with a responsive search firm, be they contingency or retained over the process, they learn your business, they learn your culture, and so they become, they can become a very costly, but effective part of your organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's essentially what she was echoing also and all the other vendors that she relies on also. And again, getting back to some of the things that we talked about, she's like, listen, there's a, a high cost to a low price. She's like, we spend top dollar. She's like, but again, it's, a, it's an insurance policy and it's just the importance is massive. So
0: uh, it's your, well, your the, you have a window of time. So you make an investment, you end up with a portfolio company, you have a window of time by which you have to hit a hurdle rate, an internal uh, rate of return number, and so that you can exit that investment at some point in the next three to five years. Being slow to build the management team in a portfolio company is often the kiss of death as you've just said, you can be insistent that you're going to do it yourself or you can accelerate the process. And I think the latter is always the uh, the best. Now, of course, you get people that come over the transom who are perfect. You get through relationships and, and those hires are always good as well. But yeah. you have to get that management team in place quickly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So true. All right. We're running a little tight on time. I've got two remaining questions for you. You ready? Oh, I I hope so. (laughs) Um, Getting back, we've thrown out a few quotes. I, I love quotes. I'm going to throw a quote at you, and I'd love to get your perspective on what, if anything, that it means to you. If you are not willing to risk the unusual, you
0: will have to settle for the ordinary. If you're not willing to risk the unusual, you settle for the ordinary. Okay. I think that's true. Sometimes the ordinary isn't sustainable and the ordinary goes up and down. So what you're really saying is you're willing to accept the status quo. And that is sort of antithetical to how I've always lived my personal and professional life. They pay us to for a return on investment, whether we're buying trucks, or we're part of the HR function, you should be returning on the investment. And if you can't do that, then you're part of the status quo. And the status quo is never a long term option, in my opinion. So I would say that the quote is generally true. And I try to hire people who sort of innately understand that. Excellent. All right, my last
1: question what is the best advice that somebody ever gave you and and let me ask let me kind of piggyback that a little bit and saying is that advice something that you could share with everybody today or is that advice now
0: different no i think it's the same okay someone early in my career and i don't know if they saw me going the wrong way but they said if you want to be successful try to make as many other people as successful as you can. Mm. And there was another one that I'm now recalling John Wooden was one of the most successful NCAA coaches in history. I think he won 10 or 12 national championships and
1: Love Wooden maybe,
0: maybe 7 or 8 in a row. But John Wooden used to get out the broom at UCLA, and sweep the basketball court. So, someone once told me that story, and they say, "You know what? Always get out the broom every once in a while." Ooh! And I thought that was good advice. <sighs> Wooden has so many other good quotes.
1: I, I God, there's like two or three that I quote all the time. Oh, and you I can pull book with them, yeah, sure. Oh, what does it say? You can't give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Is a woodenism. But to your point, also, I, I, there's a Hollywood saying that I think speaks similar to the quote of what what you're talking about, what you're referencing is that if you're fortunate enough to make it to the penthouse, don't forget to send the elevator back down. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I've heard that. That's very true. I love that. Oh man, Dennis, this has been great speaking with you, learning about your background, learning about the three buckets, learning about the importance of, I guess, just growing and challenging yourself as well as giving back, To you know those
0: that helped you to be where you are today. Thank you for coming on the show. Adam, it was a pleasure and and a unique experience. Thanks for having me. All right. Make it a great day. You too.
1: Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to networkwise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also Subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.